teaching us and presenting to us and teaching us over the years. Father, cause us to remember that what we're studying is not new. It's not different. It's the same that we have been hearing over and over and over again because it's the Word of God. Father, cause us to realize that the difference, if there is a difference, is that is being now presented within a shorter period of time, collecting the various issues together in one teaching. So, Father, keep our minds by your Spirit open. Father, guard us not against the attacks and the questions that the enemy would give to us in order to throw us off. But, Father, cause us not to be overcome by those and to go to your word and stand on your word and cling to your word and not go beyond your word. And, Father, where your word doesn't give us a word, Father, that we would not walk that path. But where your word gives us a word, that that's the path that we will stand on and that's the path down which we will walk. Thank you, Father. By your Spirit, continue to teach us this morning. And every time we come together around your word, whether in church, covenant groups, at home, individually, continue to pour into us this great work of your Spirit, your word, enlivening in us your very life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, the acrostic, T-U-L-I-P, TULIP, is a means of our approaching the subject of the doctrines of grace. So we're going to use each of the letters in this, but you're going to find that we will redefine or at least adjust some of the meanings of these letters from the apparent meaning that they give to us when we just read the word itself. So this morning we talk about the T, total depravity, total depravity. It means that fallen man is totally depraved. Fallen man is totally depraved, that each one of us were conceived into and born into total depravity. That's what that means. Now, the term total depravity obviously has a potential of not clearly representing biblical truth. So that would be some of the difficulty that we would have just leaning on the word total depravity or unconditional election or some of the other letters in the acrostic that we'll go through over the next several weeks. So because of that, some think that the word total depravity means this, that man is as completely evil in every way, every day, that we are as bad as we can get. And that's not, what the pro, that's not total depravity. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about total depravity. What total depravity means, it's not easy to say total depravity, is it? My tongue hasn't wakened yet. So any of those of you who speak in tongues, you have the interpretation, you may need to come up and help me with what I'm saying this morning. <laughs> oh, well, it's one of those mornings. Aren't you glad you're here? What total depravity is meant to convey is the idea that sin has affected the entire person down to the very core or root of his or her or our being. That's a quote from the Doctrines of Grace, page 71. From another book, The Joy of Calvinism, the author says this, We are born with every part of ourselves participating in and hence defiled by a state of freely chosen rebellion against God. So what could we say about total depravity? It means that every part of our character, every part of our character and nature has been corrupted by, has been touched by, has been tainted by sin. There is no area of my character that has not been touched, corrupted, or tainted, or influenced by sin. And that goes for all of us. Now, what is the scriptural basis for this? Is there a scriptural basis or is this just the thought of a man named Calvin, which is often what is accused? 
You see, the truth about sin's corruption, this pervasive corruption in every living human being except the Lord Jesus, and not only in every human being, but in every part of our humanness, this pervasive corruption originates in the Scriptures. It doesn't originate with John Calvin. It doesn't originate with the Reformers. And so someone, someone's talking to us or we're talking to them about this issue of corruption and they bring up Calvinism and say, no, no, this is a biblical truth. This is what the Bible teaches. Certainly certain people have taken particular aspects of biblical truth and have gone with them and enlarged upon them and have emphasized them in their teachings and have championed particular issues of biblical truth. And sometimes a biblical truth becomes associated with that person who has made a large impact into the church because of the emphasis and teaching and explanation and elucidation of that truth. But it doesn't mean that the truth originated with that person. All truth originates in Scripture. If it's not in Scripture, it's not biblical or God truth. Can you say amen? amen. So the Scripture is where we are. This is not a teaching about Calvinism or Reformed theology or what uh, this church believes. It is a teaching of the Word of God. And so this is where we must go in order to find the root of what it is that we're discussing. So first, I just want to emphasize two issues here, although there could be many more, but we don't have time for all of them. Two issues concerning this total or pervasive pollution or depravity first man is polluted by sin the bible tells us now you're going to find that i'm only going to give us a couple of scriptures on each of these although we could fill our notebooks with scriptures concerning these issues and hopefully if you are studying on your own and you're reading some of these books you're going to delve into the scripture and look up and see, as the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, whether these things are so. And so let us be Bereans. Let us not just say, well, Pastor Peter said this, therefore it is true. No. Let's say that this is what was taught us this morning. And these are the scriptures that were given. And let's go to the scripture that was given and look it up. And then look up references that are coming out of that scripture where other scriptures say the same kind of thing and begin to study for yourself and begin to determine on your own by the spirit with the spirit what God is saying about us what God is saying about us maybe not what we think about one another maybe not how we consider one another or how we understand one another or how we feel about one another those are important issues but the main issue is what does God say about us because on the day of judgment, it won't be what my mom and them thought about me or my wife liked me or whether my girlfriend or whatever. It will be what saith the Lord about my life. That's the baseline. Therefore, we go to the Scripture for that. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All, all what? Humanity. All are under sin or all have sinned. All are under sin is another chapter. I'm bouncing around here. All have sinned. Anyone in here, you have not sinned. Anyone in here, you just started sinning today. How many of us in here have been sinning ever since we can begin? Be, uh, remember, how many of us in here have little children and we had to train them to say, No, I don't want it, and throw a tantrum when they didn't get it? You know, there's a difference in the cry of a rebellious child and the cry of a child who needs something, who's tired or, you know, needs feeding or has been hurt. There's a difference in the cry. So parents distinguish between the cries. That cry of sin is that caustic, I want something from you, I'm demanding something of you kind of a cry. Oh, oh, have we heard it? Have you even heard it from others who are adults, but the difference is we don't cry that way. We couch it in other terminology, sometimes very seemingly sweet terminology. But the fact is sin pervades us all and enslaves us all, which is the next point. Man is enslaved 
to sin. Romans 3, 9, here it is. All humanity, all of us are under sin, which means under its domination or its control, under its mastery. Galatians 4, 3 says, in the same way we were enslaved. Paul is talking to the believers, so he says we were because no longer are they in Christ. But before, <coughs> before they came into Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, to sin. Now, how much of our character was enslaved to sin? How many of you think that just some of your character was enslaved to sin? But there are other issues and areas and aspects of your character that are not under sin's control. I mean, have we lived together, especially as husbands and wives and families, to realize, man, there's not an area that is untouched by sin. We have good days and bad days, whatever, but sin pops up and permeates all the time. We're enslaved to sin, incarcerated. We have been locked down in sin's cell. That's who we are by character, by nature, by birth. So what is the meaning of our depravity? What is the meaning of it? <clears throat> if we want to see the meaning of depravity from, from God's view, let's open our Bibles this morning and let's turn to Romans chapter 3. And let's read what the Holy Spirit has told the Apostle Paul to write from the Old Testament scriptures concerning our depravity. And you will notice that as we go to chapter 3, verse 10... Paul will begin this as it is written. He doesn't say, look, this is a new theology. He doesn't say, I'm getting this from a man named John Calvin. He doesn't say, you know, this is something that's never been around before, but Jesus has shown me something that isn't anywhere else in the Bible. Everything he is quoting here, everything he is stating in these verses 10 to 18 is a quote from various locations of the Old Testament scriptures. Hopefully you have a Bible that gives you the references and you can go into the Old Testament and look up the various Psalms that he's discussing this from and see the enlargement of the, uh, of the indictment that we have here. But let's look at God's view of our condition. And as I read this, let's remember this. I am not reading words here just from a book I am reading God's eternal assessment of each one of us personally I want you to get this that personally if you were the only person in all creation this is what God would say about you this is what God is saying about the meanest snake on earth now, you may think the meanest snake on earth was the fellow who went into the movie theater. You may think the meanest snake on earth is Hitler. You may think the meanest snake on earth is your mother-in-law. I don't know who the meanest snake on earth is. I don't know who that is. And it's easy to say, oh, yeah, I know that one. Ooh, that person. But my mama, my auntie, my next-door neighbor, but Mother Teresa... Ah, ah. You see, we want to make sure that we include everyone in this from our perspective of being depraved from one end of the spectrum to the other. Let us allow this to impact every aspect and every person that we know personally and have heard about in history and collect all of humanity, especially me personally, into these verses. Because I think it will indicate to us how often our perspective of our depravity, of our character, of our nature, of who we are by birth is woefully, woefully deficient. And we need to hear from God. So, verse 10 through 18. As it is written by the hand of the Holy Spirit himself. None is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. You know, what would be good in your Bible is to underline these negatives, none and the positive, all and, and these words, just to see the inclusiveness of what God is saying about every person. So what is the result of this? What is the result of our flawed, sin-filled, dominated character? How does it work out? What does it look like? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that's an indictment. And when you look at that, and let's be honest today, when we look at those scriptures, how many people do we know, not of the church, not saved people, or maybe people before they were saved, how many of us believe, let's be honest, that we know people who don't fall into this category? Nobody does good. You don't know anybody who does good. Nobody in this room knows somebody who's done some good. Come on. Come on. There are only about seven people in this room that you know somebody's done good. Man, we got a, a group. You know, what about your family? How many of us know anybody outside of the church? You know, they, they have some understanding of God. What about they, they, people seeking for God? I mean, we hear all the time, man is seeking for God. <laughs> the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says otherwise. But how many of us know that people are seeking for God? Raise your hand. We know that. Well, what's wrong or what's right? What's happening here? How can it be that the Bible, the Holy Spirit, says this, and yet my experience knows that Mother Teresa was a good woman? Are you with me? What's going on? You see, when we read the word of God that says no one seeks for or understands God or no one does good, many of us should have a problem with that. Come on, let us not just swallow the word and not think. Let us not just swallow the word <clears throat> and not allow the Holy Spirit to <clears throat> mess with our understandings and our categories. Let us hear the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to really shake us and for us to go to God and say, I don't see this. Can you explain this to me? I don't get it. It's okay to tell God these things. All of us know good people. All of us know kind people. All of us know people who look like they're seeking for God. There are men in seminaries today who are not saved, who have sometimes a better understanding of the activities of God than Christians do. They're an understanding there. What in the world is this meaning then? Does this mean the word of God is wrong or there's inconsistency here? We can't trust it? Why do I dwell on this? Because this is what happens to us when we read something that we come across and we don't get it because our experience is contrary. And we either have to say, well, the word of God is true. Word. I don't understand, but I just have to do that, you know, because God said it. Or we feel God or somebody has made a mistake in the script. You see, you can't trust the script. I, to I told you, yes, I told you you can't believe this book because there are discrepancies in this book. No, there are none. It's a lack of understanding, and when we don't understand, we go to the Holy Spirit, and we ask for understanding, and we talk to one another, and we listen to uh, the Word of God, and we read, and we ask the Holy Spirit to elucidate, to, to show us what's going on. Now, we're talking about the things that can be understood. We're not talking about the deep things of God that He's not giving to us. Well, what's happening here? Look at verse 10. See, the answer is in verse 10. And, and before you look at verse 10, how many of you genuinely, when you hear these words and you think about what we know in, in the natural world, how many of you really do? You're challenged by this. Come on. Come on. Let's, let's be honest this morning. Only four of you are challenged. Come on. Come off it. We're challenged by I'm challenged by this. 
You should be challenged by this. It's okay to say I'm challenged by it. This is healthy. It's truthful. Because we're supposed to be challenged by it. Because you see, the word of God is to challenge us against our natural understandings and dispositions. It's good to be challenged by the word of God. So what does verse 10 say? None is, may I hear your voices? None is what? Righteous. How many? No, not one. None is what? Righteous. No, not one. Now, how many people are included in none? All. How many are excluded from no, not one? None. You know, you say, wait a minute, how did he say that? And what, you know, those next. <laughs> when the Holy Spirit says, there isn't a righteous person on the face of the earth. What does that mean? No one is righteous. He's talking about our character. You see, nothing we do, nothing we want, nothing we desire, nothing we hope for, nothing about us is motivated by, is imbued with, is encouraged, is empowered, is anything by righteousness. Why? Because none of us is righteous. None of us has righteousness in us intrinsically or by birth. None. You see, nothing we do is the result of our being righteous because we are born without any personal righteousness of our own. We are born without any personal righteousness of our own. Remember what even the Apostle Paul says, I am not having a righteousness of my own. None of us are born this way. So you see, in this passage, the issue is not deeds in and of themselves. They are deeds of, what word? Righteousness. They are particular kinds of deeds. They are deeds that come from the result of, moved by, and have the goal of righteousness. Now, you have to see this because if you don't see it, then you begin to miss the thing. Once we see this, we begin to say, oh, I see what God is meaning. Oh, that makes sense. So the issue in these verses is not you don't do good things and you don't understand and you don't seek and you don't care. That's not the issue here. The issue is from the perspective or within the context of righteousness. None of us cares. None of us seeks. None of us does good deeds. None of us understand. None of us anything from the perspective of Righteousness. Are you with me this morning? You may say righteousness if I do that. So from the perspective of what? Perspective of what? Righteousness. How many of you were in the classroom years ago, the teacher would ask the class to say something, everybody together, right? It's okay. I'm an old school teacher. I, I taught school. I enjoy and want to hear from you. I want to make sure you're listening and hearing. Now, if you can't hear, you're deaf because of my voice, but whatever. So what does the Bible mean by Righteousness. Righteous is the biblical term that describes the very person and work of God himself. 2 Chronicles 2, uh, 2, 6, the Lord is righteous. If I were to give you all the references of God being righteous, they would fill pages. God is righteous. And so when Paul says, none are righteous, no, not one, all of a sudden <clears throat> we begin to understand that we are talking not about something from us or about us by nature. We are talking about something that is anchored in, comes from and is for and about God. And that's the context. Verse 10, none are righteous. And in verses 11 and 12, no understanding, no seeking, no do, nobody does good. And verse 13, 18, this is what it looks like. See, when the Bible says God is righteous, 
It means that God is completely, perfectly, and eternally right in himself. In all of his motives, in all of his thoughts, in all of his purposes, in all of his ways, in all that he does and in all that he does not do, in all of his judgments, decisions, and actions. There is not an aspect about God himself, and there's not an aspect or a detail or an activity of God's work or ways that is not completely, absolutely, perfectly righteous. God is absolutely, purely righteousness himself. So when the Bible says none are righteous, we begin to understand the category in which the apostle is telling us concerning our deeds and our character. And we begin to see that, oh, my character, my nature, I can see why I am so depraved or so permeated by sin. I see the problem here because there is in me intrinsically, by birth, nothing of righteousness at all. <clears throat> now, have I given you any thought that I am leaving out a little bit of righteousness in me? Anybody, does anybody here think that before we were saved, we had a little bit anyway? Does anybody think you just had a little bit? Or in at least a, 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 a category of at least this area was righteous. Anybody at all think that? The Bible says no. The Bible says no. <clears throat> you see, we think that way because, again, we are viewing the situation from our own personal perspective, fallen, finite understanding. And we must allow God himself to instruct us in these areas. There's not a molecule of righteousness in us as far as our character is concerned, as far as what we do and motivation and purpose and goal and will is concerned. It's not there. <clears throat> Psalm 11, 7, For the Lord is righteous and he loves righteous deeds. So now we begin to understand what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. We begin to understand that the issue here is righteousness. Because we are not righteous, therefore our deeds are not righteous. And as a result, God must reject all that is not of righteousness. God must reject everything of unrighteousness. Why? Because it is antithetical to his character, to who he is. How many of y'all open the doors and let the roaches come in? Come on. How many of y'all want roaches in your house? There's a roach, too, crawling across your bed and on your, your sheet, on your pillow. How many of you are willing to live that way if you have a choice? Anybody want roaches in your house? Why not? They nasty. Now, now, God views our unrighteousness a lot worse than that. So if we're not going to get let a little bitty insect into our house, why is God? Why is God going to let that which is the worst thing in all creation into his house? He's opposed to unrighteousness. He's opposed to it. You see, again, this isn't new theology. We've been teaching and preaching this for years. Why? Because the Bible teaches and preaches it to us. Isaiah 64, 6. Listen. We, how many of us? We. We have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds, what we think are righteous and good and understanding and, and pure and caring and loving, all the things that we think, the Bible says they are like a polluted garment, a nasty thing before God. It'd be like God putting this on, this garment on. It's like, nah, I don't think so. It's not going to happen. Again, we struggle with this. I know we struggle with this. And am I, yeah, but, but, but because we're so ingrained in the flesh because we live in fleshly bodies. I understand that. 
But what we need to do is to allow, ask for, and embrace what the Holy Spirit is saying about us. Why? Because in order to be free of unrighteousness, we must understand who we are before God in order to be free of unrighteousness. There is a way of being freed from this, which we'll discuss as we go through. <clears throat> what is the origin of our depravity? Well, the origin of our depravity is the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. When Adam specifically in Genesis 3, verse 6, the last three words, and he ate. The Lord said, don't do that, he ate it. We were created to be in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26, and God created us to be the visible manifestation, the visible outworking of his personal righteousness on earth. And that was to be demonstrated through his sovereign rule as we would rule and reign with Jesus. And it was to be manifested specifically in one category, specifically in one category that overrode every other category, and that was in our obedience. And when Adam rejected the reign of God and repudiated God's rule by disobeying, Adam lost his relationship of righteousness with God. You see, it wasn't just a relationship that he lost. He lost something much deeper. He lost a righteousness of relationship with God. And not only did Adam lose that, then he became dressed, if you would, or his nature became totally permeated with non-righteousness or unrighteousness. And not only Adam, but everybody who is from Adam. How many of you in, have inherited particular physiological, mental, emotional characteristics from your mom and them? Anybody in here that what you have didn't come from somebody else? Anybody in here at all that what you have didn't come from somebody else? We all inherited natural things. Well, not only that, but we all have inherited the sin nature from Adam. All have sinned. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 because all sin. <clears throat> Therefore, we were born dead to righteousness. When the Bible says you're dead in sins and trespasses, it means to righteousness, to the issue of having and functioning in and being motivated by and for the purpose of God's righteousness in relation to that. We're dead. We're totally dead. How many of you know dead people don't do much? How many of you know dead people can't do much? How many of you know I just said it wrong? I said much. What should I have said? Anything. I don't know if you caught that, but maybe you didn't. How many of us know dead people can't do anything? Don't we know that? So when God says we're dead to his righteousness, brothers and sisters in Christ, what does he mean? We're dead in every category except maybe a little bitty one over here. We got a little bit of life right over here. No, he means that every aspect of our life in relation to his righteousness is what? Dead. 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 We have no natural ability or desire, Romans 3.11. We have no natural ability or desire for righteousness or for the deeds of righteousness. You see, everything about us is motivated by something of, for, and about self. It may be altruistic. It may be a wonderful deed that everybody is praising somebody laid his life down for this person that is all good but if they're not in Christ it wasn't motivated by God honoring God pleasing God exalting glory now we don't like that how many of you don't like this come on come on now there's only two in here don't like this you're having a struggle with it <laughs> let's face it this is not easy it's not easy for me is it easy for you but it's God. You see, the reason it's not easy because our flesh fights against it. Do you feel your flesh fighting against it this morning, church? Do you not? How many of you feel yourself fighting against this? How many of you feel yourself, yeah, but, yeah, but. How many of you hear that word in you? Come on. How many of you hear that? Yeah, yeah, but, 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 but. It's our flesh fighting against the truth of God. It shows us, even as saved people, how much we're in bondage to self. 
Do you see that? Do you understand that? I want you to feel this this morning because it's a critical issue. You see, therefore, apart from God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, all, how much? All. May I repeat it? How much? All that we do is from, for, or about our own unrighteousness. In the natural world, it will come across very nice and very good. But in the spiritual world, God rejects it. Paul says this, they seek their own interests and not the interests of Christ. As a result, none of us is on our own able to seek for God or do the deeds of God or of righteousness. By nature, we are all weak and ungodly. I'm quoting from Romans 5, 6, 8, and 10. We are all sinners, and we are all God's enemies. So you see, simply put, our unrighteousness cannot do the deeds of righteousness. Now do we understand what Paul meant when he says none does good? Are you getting a better understanding of this this morning? How many of you understand it a little better this morning? Nobody seeks, nobody understands, nobody does good. Why? In view of righteousness. Ah, that's what is meant here. God has categorized this in a category about himself. Now, oh boy, look at the clock. What about free will? What about free will? Does our lack of desire or ability mean that we have no free will? Yes, it does, and no, it doesn't. Yes and no. So let me go through this quickly. As I said, I, I think we need to start making these sessions about an hour. Anybody say amen? amen. I mean, yeah, okay, we're going for another hour. Now, <laughs> oh, I didn't mean an hour the whole thing. I just meant an hour from, first of all, only God is genuinely free in himself. Only God has genuinely free will. What do we mean? His will is not manipulated by anything or anyone outside of himself. He is completely free from any external influence or requirement. So do we get that? Every one of us are influenced by something. God is never and is in no way influenced by anything apart or outside of himself. Everything about his will is generated within the context of who he is in himself. God is the only being in all creation who has real free will, free of any constraints or influences or manipulations. Do we understand what that means? That is real free will. Second, our wills are always influenced by something. We're influenced by something or someone, some event, some thought, some attitude, some feeling, some need. Aren't we influenced by that? All of our wills are influenced. So they're not free from influence as God's will is. Our wills are not free from anything like that. So it can't mean that our wills are free from influences. Therefore, we choose what we most want to do. What mostly influences us, we're going to do it. You know, if, if you are a person who really can't stay up to midnight, and then that dark movie came out. What's the name of the dark movie? The night thing. The, the Batman movie came out. And that's showing at midnight. Whew, I'm tired, but... My desire to go see that movie is greater than my desire to go to sleep. So what are you going to do? Your will is motivated by and empowered by what you mostly want to do. You know? You want to do two things, but the thing that's going to govern you is that external manipulation, that external desire, that in external influence. I want to mostly do that. I can sleep tomorrow afternoon. I can go to church late because I said I just had a rough day yesterday and I was at the movies last night. You see, I can do these things. Because of our unrighteousness, now this is critical. I have spent a long time this morning building a biblical case. Because of our unrighteousness, again, let me stop. Is there anyone in here who believes that you're not unrighteousness, unrighteous in all your ways outside of Christ? So you see, we understand and we have accepted God's word. Because of our total unrighteousness, 
our wills are held captive to and by Satan. I mean, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.26 says, our wills are held captive by Satan to do his will. We're talking about unbelievers. So that whatever we do, we freely do being informed and motivated by our own unrighteousness. So we do have free will. Within the context of our unrighteousness, we are free to accept or do or go or decide anything and everything within the context of unrighteousness. Within that context, we are free. We have free will. Do, do we understand the difference? Oh, are you getting the difference? But do we have free will to do anything about our unrighteousness toward righteousness? No. You see, if we have an ability in us, even a little bitty one, to in any way want righteousness on our own, it's just in me by character. I want righteousness. Is that an unrighteous or a righteous desire? If I want righteousness, is that an unrighteous or a righteous desire? Come on, come on, speak up. It's a righteous desire. If my desiring righteousness, is that a righteous or an unrighteous desire? Assuming it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a righteous desire. It's righteous. It's motivated for God. That's my motivation. I want to do that righteousness for God. But if I have that ability in me, then Romans 3.10 is wrong because there's a little bit of righteousness in me. But the Bible says how much? I don't have any. So can I on my own seek for God? Can I? No. Can I on my own understand God? No. Can I, on my own, call out to Jesus out of my own unrighteousness? Can I? No, because that's a work of God's righteousness. It's not there. Can I, on my own, express faith in Jesus apart from his righteousness giving me the ability to? No, because that would be a righteous faith. Do you see this? You see the implications here. And it's significant that we see this this morning. We freely exercise our free will to freely sin. And any and every aspect of our desires and our, our, of a faith is continually and always moved by, motivated by, steeped in the result of our own personal unrighteousness. And unrighteousness cannot, on its own, call out to God. If it could, God would then find something good in us because it is good to put your faith in Jesus, isn't it? And so if it could happen, then God's word, none of good, no, not one, would have to be altered except if you call upon the name of Jesus to save you. Then that would be good, isn't it? But Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit says, it isn't there. So we have to decide, is it there or not? Is the Bible correct or not? Are there, what word do I want, um, areas that uh, don't apply or not? No, this is an all-inclusive condemnation of man's unrighteousness. Because for me to willingly and desiringly call out to Jesus, Jesus, I need to be saved. Will you save me? Will you save me? I will seek for you. If I do that on my own, that's good. And the Bible says there is no good. Now, what is this causing you to understand? That we have no hope in ourselves to be saved. Are you with me on this? Now, you may have some trouble with this. I hope some of you should have trouble because I don't know whether we thought it out clearly. This causes us to be absolutely and totally dependent upon and looking to God, excuse me, God who gives us the ability righteously to call upon him, which we'll see in the next few weeks. Either the Bible is right, there is no good in me, or the Bible is wrong. 
Because even a molecule to be able to call out to the name of the Lord on my own, out of my unrighteous character, you understand what I'm talking about here this morning, is a good thing, therefore the Bible is wrong. A lot to think about, right? How many of you have been challenged already this morning? Come on, how many of you have been challenged? Well, I thought we had to express faith to be born again. You see, we have it backward, and we'll be learning that. Yeah, but I heard the preacher on TV the other day said, if you don't have faith in Jesus, you can't be born again. It's backward from what the Word of God teaches. It sounds right. It sounds good. It's laudable. It's what I can do. But it's not Bible. It's not Bible. We'll explain more of this later. This should be rattling your cage. Hopefully you bring other people in here next week and let us all be rattled together. A whole lot of shaking going on here. To do otherwise is not possible other than to freely receive and, and work in righteousness. It's not possible except God gives us his own righteous nature. Then we can begin to function righteously. This is why Jesus said in Luke 18, what is impossible with God concerning man's salvation. What is impossible with men, sorry, is possible with God. So let me close with this verse. I think we now understand better what Jesus said in John 6. 44 and 65, no one can on his own, in his own unrighteousness, in his natural state, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draw is interesting. You look it up. This is not just a pat on the back. This is a very strong word. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by him, to him by the Father. See you next week. Thank you so much.